Hello, I'm Patrick Ridgel. I'm here with Tom Wall today, Chief Investment Officer of Transamerica Asset Management. And we'd like to both welcome you to the first podcast of our new series. It's called From Now Until November, The Election and the Markets. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. So you're an investment guy. You've been in the investment business for three decades, 30 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to start a series called From Now Until November? Yeah, sounds uh, kind of like a novel, doesn't it? In a little bit. How'd you come up with the idea? Yeah, so like you said, I've, I've been in the asset management business, mostly managing mutual funds or overseeing managers of funds since about the late 1980s. But following politics has always been kind of a great hobby of mine. I grew up in Washington, D.C., very politically active family. Politics was in our blood growing up. I actually spent a college summer as a Senate intern. So mm-hmm. following the election in a market context is you know pretty interesting to me. Um, I think this year the markets clearly are going to be queuing off of the campaigns to some extent, uh, both in the Democratic primaries and the general election. Uh, among other things, of course, a lot of twists and turns so far. Uh, more to come for sure. But my sense is this year, unlike most others, the markets will be reacting at least in part uh, to the election as it unfolds. Okay, so let's jump right into it. Super Tuesday was still re- still relatively fresh, but long enough ago that we can digest some of the Three results. Days. Seems Three like days. A, seems yeah. like a lifetime, uh, according to this week. Some big surprises. What's your take on how things went down? Well, not to over-dramatize matters. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I've been following elections since 1968. Yes, I was in second grade when I followed my first election. And I really don't recall a campaign when we've seen such an overwhelming turnaround in just about a week's time. I mean, following the Nevada caucus in late February, you know, the thinking was Bernie Sanders was on the verge of running the tables. And if Joe Biden could maybe survive South Carolina, his back was still going to be against the wall uh, versus Sanders for those 14 primaries on Super Tuesday. The thinking was if Biden could win, you know, most of the southern states, Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, mm-hmm. maybe throw in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. If he could do that, the thinking was he could live to fight on, and that was about as much as he could hope for that night. But to do what he did, to take, in addition to those states I just mentioned, to take the three M's, Maine, Minnesota, and Massachusetts, was really beyond anyone's expectations. And then to win Texas. Come on, Texas, <laughs> where Sanders had been way ahead in the polls. Uh, that's something really out of like a science fiction flick. And from another lens, the thinking was also if Biden could come out of Super Tuesday trailing Sanders in the delegate count by only about, say, 150 or 200 delegates, it would have been a decent night for him. But instead, he comes out 60-plus delegates ahead. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's like the Biden empire strikes back. Yeah, really. So how do you do it? You know, perfect storm in my opinion. Uh, first, he's down and out, you know, after the first three, after the first uh, contests and the first three contests and the party establishment, Democratic voters, to some extent, you know, start getting a little nervous about Bernie Sanders as the actual nominee of the party. It's kind of like, you know, hey, this could really happen here. Uh, you know, the whole Sanders is too far to the left and Trump will brand him as a socialist yeah. in the general election. And the party, you know, will be at risk of losing a lot of down ballot races in the House and Senate. That, in my opinion, that concern really started to reverberate throughout the party right after Nevada. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Then, then I think Sanders, you know, to be to be honest, you know, Sanders as the 
you know, new, fully recognized or ordained front runner at that at that moment in time, uh, in my opinion, made some some real enforced errors. Uh, beginning with his sixty minutes interview yeah. when he apparently you know praised Fidel Castro. Yeah, that might not have been such a good move. Huh? Uh, no, not at all. And, and then he essentially doubled down on it in the South Carolina debate a few nights later. Yeah, he blew South Carolina just a few nights later. Yeah, right there, I think, in the debate, he blew it uh, with comments about Castro. And why that moment, I think, made so many Democrats so nervous, you know, fairly un- or unfairly, mm-hmm. and, and don't get me wrong, I know a lot of people who will come down on the unfairly side of how things were uh, were, uh, were were viewed here uh, for Sanders, but it just seemed at that moment to play into the classic stereotype that so many in the anti Sanders camp were trying to paint him as too far to the left to represent the party against Trump, and from there the the walls you know sort of started to crumble on him. Right, and then Jim Clyburn endorsed Biden in South Carolina, uh, which was huge. That was huge, and locked up the blowout win for Biden in that state. And not to sound too cynical, but with the new entrant Mike Bloomberg, you know, pretty much falling on his face right out of the blocks in his first debate. The, I think the party establishment saw an opening, and they gave Amy Klobuchar and, and Mayor Pete you know, a little nudge to you know, step aside. A friendly nudge. Of course, a friendly nudge. And suddenly Biden, after all he'd been through, is you know, pretty much the only moderate left in the game just when everyone seems to be getting nervous about Sanders. And, you know, bam, he's off the canvas and throwing punches again. So – we have a lot of primaries left. I think we've got about 30 primaries left or so. Where do we go from here? Yeah, uh, a, a lot of primaries left. I believe the exact count is, is 33. And the media is trying to make this out to be a big you know, one-on-one showdown that's uh, going down to the wire between Biden and Sanders. But I, I'm really not so sure about that. Why do you say that? Well, uh, okay, so part delegate map and part delegate math. Uh, both Sanders and Biden need 1,900 91 delegates for the Democratic nomination. Biden's at about 630 and Sanders about 560 after Super Tuesday. And then about 160 is spread out among candidates no longer in the race. So let's look at, you know, let's take a look at where the primaries go from here. Next up, we got Michigan, Missouri, and Mississippi. That's over 200 delegates. All favor Biden, in my opinion. Then you move on to Florida Illinois and Ohio, uh-huh. 510 delegates okay. that night. Uh, and Sanders has has blown it in Florida, in my opinion. Trust me, I, I think it's over for him okay. there. Illinois is Barack Obama's home state. I think that definitely favors Biden. Uh, Ohio, I believe, also favors Biden. Mm-hmm. Then uh, later in April, you got Pennsylvania and New York combining for another 486 delegates. Uh, Pennsylvania is Biden's home state. And even though Sanders is from New York, you know, he hasn't lived there in, in like forever. And if Biden's racking up wins by then, I, you know, I think probably New York falls in line also. So there's obviously quite a bit of delegate math to break down here. Yeah, yes, there, there is. But let's take a step back here. Before we do that, I, let's talk about what you really do for a living. Um, and there's been a lot of big moves in the markets lately, especially on the Wednesday after Super Tuesday and Super Tuesday itself. Is this a coincidence or what? Uh, no, I don't think so. Now, obviously, the coronavirus, which which I'll talk a lot more about in just a few minutes, has been a big reason, the big reason for selling and volatility in the markets this year. And I think it mm-hmm. will also, you know, play a major role in the general election. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a couple of minutes. But in regard to the big upward move in the market the day after Super Tuesday, 
I, I really think that had a lot to do with Biden's great showing, or perhaps maybe I should say Sanders' not so great showing, and how the path forward now looks uh, for both of them. Okay, so what do you think the market was saying? I really think the market was starting to get more than just a little frightened about Bernie Sanders. He's an admitted democratic socialist, and to a lot of investors, that's with a small d and a capital S. Uh, not saying that that's necessarily a fair characterization. Okay. Not saying this is a political opinion. You know, just a market observation. You know, which which is you know, as you said, what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. Realistically speaking, you know, I think the market was starting to realize that in any general election. Any of the two final candidates, or I should say either of the two final candidates, you know, really can win. History has taught us that. Unexpected things can happen. So there was starting to be some angst in the market, at least from my perspective, that uh, Sanders as the nominee might have a, you know, 40 or even 50 percent chance of going from candidate Sanders to actually President Sanders. And that, you know, I think unnerved the market a bit. And, you know, and that's based on his, you know, economic policies are believed by most investors to have potentially very negative consequences you know, to the economy and the markets. Right, yeah. Again, you know, a market observation, not a political opinion. So following Super Tuesday, the market you're saying was celebrating Bernie Sanders as more of a long shot to win the presidency? Y- yes, exactly. The market was, to some extent, you know, I think discounting a lower probability of what you might call a worst-case scenario. Okay. I don't think Biden versus Trump scares the market that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, after all, the market did you know extremely well under the Obama Biden administration. And now, of course, there were you know a few other things going on right after Super Tuesday, the mm-hmm. coronavirus news, and the day after surprise fifty basis point rate cut by the Fed. So it, it wasn't everything, but I, I think it, it definitely played yeah. a role. But, okay, so now let's. Let's, we need to definitely talk about the coronavirus and yeah, how sure. that's impacting the election and the markets. What do you say? Yeah, well, first, let me say, before talking about the coronavirus in lesser terms, such as uh, from an investment or, or political perspective, you know, that, it, that it, it goes without saying it is, of course, a human sure. tragedy and our hearts and prayers you know, go out to everybody who has been affected by it. Absolutely. Uh, so, so that said, of course, it has – pretty much been the sole reason for the market declines and volatility we've seen this year. There are big health uncertainties and economic uncertainties as a result of this virus. There will undoubtedly be economic impacts both globally and in the U.S. The question is how much and for how long. Uh, Right now, there is more speculation about the degree of this and no real consensus of expectations. Mm-hmm. So at this point, the coronavirus, or you know, as it's also referred to, COVID-19, is front and center driving the markets. Okay. You know, we published quite a bit of market-related uh, commentary. And while there is you know, a lot of talk about recession risk uh, increasing because of the virus, you know, we, you know we, we by no means see that outcome as definitive. Mm-hmm. If first quarter GDP here in the U.S. comes out, at just half of original expectations, that would still be 1% growth, still not negative per se. You know, At that point, a recession would have to come later in the year, second or third quarters or third or fourth quarters. And, and we're not ready to concede that by any means right now. Right. But, but it is safe to say that economic activity here in the U.S. and globally will slow. Recession risk has increased, and the markets are wrestling with how much. Mm-hmm. And politically – uh, in my opinion, it will also start to take on an increasing focus 
as the campaigns move on and the general election approaches. So in, in what ways do you see this split playing out specifically? Yeah, yeah. So, so come November, uh, I think the country will probably have a verdict on how President Trump has handled the crisis of this virus. Could be a good verdict, could be a not-so-good verdict. Uh, no idea right now, but there will be a verdict, in my opinion. And, it, you know, it could change over time. The mm-hmm. closest analogy I can come up with is the Carter versus Reagan election of 1980 and the Iranian hostage crisis. Mm. That crisis first began in late 1979, just before the election season was heating up. Initially, the country sort of rallied around President Carter as their leader and supported him because of it. It played a major role in Carter's ability to beat, in my opinion, it played a major role in Carter's ability to defeat Ted Kennedy in a tough primary battle to win the Democratic nomination that year. Mm -hmm. But as, as that election year wore on, Nothing changed in the crisis. Mm -hmm. The hostages remained under captivity, and the tide turned, and by November, it was a big liability for Carter. Mm. So combined with a a bad economy, it secured Reagan's victory in that election. Very different type of crisis, but I could see that same sort of risk for Trump. Mm -hmm. So we'll really have to see. But between now and November, the onus will be on President Trump to prove to the American people that he handles the crisis of the virus well. That will be a big factor when the whole country votes in November. Could hurt him, could help him. Yeah, and, and, of course, it could impact the economy as well, just like you said. Y- yes, yeah, sort of a second derivative effect from a political standpoint. Maybe the coronavirus itself winds up not as bad as some might fear. We would certainly hope that would be the case. But perhaps in keeping it in check, the economy slows worse than expected. You know, people don't travel, don't go out and buy things, don't go out to restaurants, potentially supply chain disruptions out of China for U.S. company. And then Trump's biggest selling point, a strong economy, you know, could lose some steam, and it's a completely different election come November. Okay. So moving around a bit, we're going to go back to the delegate math in the Democratic yeah, primary. Yeah, delegate math. <laughs> a lot of talk about a brokered convention. Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps after Super Tuesday, Biden s- maybe starts to run away with it? What do you think? Uh, no, not, not necessarily. Remember, the Democrats have proportional representation in their primaries. So if Sanders hangs in there – Gets his 30%, 40% in the primaries, maybe wins you know, a few primaries here and there along the way. It could wind up being pretty challenging for Biden to get to 50% plus one delegate or the 1,991 mm-hmm. number, which is what he would need to win on the first ballot. Okay. Remember, Biden got off to a very slow start in those first three states. So in that scenario, a uh, brokered convention? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so technically, yes. Uh, and, and here's where we get into some definitional hair splitting. I, I, I think most people uh, use the term brokered convention. They mean a convention when no candidate has 50% of the delegates when the voting begins on the first ballot. Okay. Haven't, we haven't had one of those in a while uh-huh. in, in either party. Uh, last one was the 1976 Republican convention you know, between President Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan. But that was still decided on the first ballot because there was only two candidates. And, of course, one of them was was, was going to get a majority on mm-hmm. the first ballot. And even though we have a lot of candidates who have dropped out at this time, some of them will still have pledged delegates that could at least hypothetically keep both Biden and Sanders below 50%. Okay, then what? Would, would it be a second ballot? Y- yes, something we have not seen in either party since 1952. Uh, used to happen all the time up until the 1950s uh, before actual voting primaries began. In a second ballot, all pledged delegates are unbound 
and can vote for anyone. Doesn't even have to be declared candidate. And if no one gets to 50%, then they go again. Mm-hmm. And if no one gets to 50% on a second ballot, they go to a third ballot and and so forth. Um, just as a couple of you know historical you know footnotes to how this process could actually play out and mm-hmm. has played out in history. In 1932, Franklin Roosevelt, who of course would go on to serve four terms through the uh, Great Depression and World War II, was actually not nominated in 1932 until the fourth ballot. And uh, my favorite uh, historical example I like to bring up is in 1924, John W. Davis, a name long (laughs) since lost to history, was nominated by the Democrats in that election on the 103rd ballot. So you're going way back now. Yeah, yeah. So there definitely is some chance, in my opinion, for mayhem this year at the convention. You know, maybe not 103 ballots, but perhaps – you know, a second ballot, but I think I really think that will probably be it because on a second ballot, enter the super delegates. Okay, so tell me about the super delegates. Who are they? I, I know they kind of sound a little bit like you know, sort of action figures, <laughs> kids might own or something like that. Uh, Democrat super delegates uh, are independent delegates chosen by the party, or one might say in this case, the party establishment, and they can vote for whoever they want. This election, the rules were changed uh, somewhat in response to the 2016 treatment of second delegates, super delegates, in which they could vote on the first ballot. And this year, they can't vote until the second ballot. But if it goes there, an additional 773 of these delegates will be allowed to vote for whoever they choose. 773. 773, which would add uh, to the majority that would be needed from the 1,991. This is... This is really okay. uh, this is this is high sophisticated math we're working through here. <laughs> Which way would they lean? Uh, I, I really think they would they would lean towards Biden. Uh, you know, going into Super Tuesday, the thinking was that Sanders would probably have a plurality of delegates on the first ballot, but perhaps not a majority. And the concern within the party at that point was that super delegates would come in on the second ballot and flip it for Biden or someone else. And then the Sanders people would be up in arms, crying foul, havoc and chaos, a big fight, total disunity, you know, which would be uh, uh, great for Trump. And that was a big concern. Mm -hmm. I I think it's less of a concern now if Biden goes in with a plurality, you know, more delegates than Sanders, but still below 50 percent. And he needs a second ballot to tip him over the top. I I think that's a little different. In, In my opinion, that's less of a case for Sanders you know, to complain in that in that particular instance. But still, that's not good for Democrats, right? Uh, no, I, I would not think so. Optics would, would be bad for them. It, that's Trump would seize on it. You know, Sanders supporters may not show up at the polls in November because of that. It, it would be bad for the Democrats at this point in time, though, you know, it, it, it would probably be good for the markets. Because the markets want Trump to win? At, at this point in time, I believe that's true. Uh, Again, a market perspective, not a political opinion on my part. Sure. And of course, a lot can change between now and November, but but that's how I see it now. So in your opinion, as you're saying, if the markets want Trump to win and others may disagree. Uh, Yes, of course. But assuming that's the case, as we talked today, what could change? You know, again, back to the coronavirus and related impacts on the economy. Uh, We've seen how much this virus has changed the markets in just a matter of weeks. Think how much it could change the election over the next several months. Okay. 
So talking more about the general election now, Trump versus Biden, maybe Trump versus Sanders, what at all might history tell us about what kind of a market reaction, reaction we can expect, good or bad? Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so this is where it gets real interesting. People talk a lot about how the markets will typically perform in election years, and I think that kind of misses the point a little bit. We think re-election years uh-huh. in which the incumbent president is running for a second term like this one is what you really need to be focusing on right now. Okay. So, so we went back and we looked at every post-World War II re-election and tracked how the S&P 500 performed in the following year, in the following calendar year after that election. Okay, and what does that look like? Okay, so there have been 11 elections since 1948 in which the sitting president has sought a second term. Okay. The incumbent president has won re-election in eight of those instances. Mm -hmm. In six of those following eight calendar years, the market has been up, and the average return of all eight in those calendar years following the election has been plus 14%. Pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, And then conversely, there have been three re-election years where the incumbent president has lost – and in the calendar year following those instances, the S&P was down two out of those three times with an average return on all three of it, negative 1%. So, so what do you make of those numbers? Yeah, yeah so, so that, that's a great question. Uh, one you know, might at first look, uh, you know, survey those numbers and say the market prefers presidents to get reelected. But I, I, I would just caution it's far more nuanced than that. Okay. I think it's a tail wagging the dog type of thing, actually. The electorate, in my opinion, actually votes twice, once at the polls in November, and then again with their investment portfolios right afterwards. (laughs) So if the electorate, by and large, feels good about the country, which generally translates into the economy, their own lives, and perceived future opportunities, you know, chances are they'll vote to reelect the president. And then in the following year, they'll also feel good about the economy and the markets, and that will show up in their investment decisions in the year to follow. Okay. Conversely, if they don't feel good about the country, they'll, they'll you know, they'll, they'll typically vote for change. And that lack of optimism at that point in time, as they're kind of awaiting a transition of a new or, 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 or working through the transition of a new president, uh, that lack of optimism about the economy and the markets, you know, will instead show up in their investment decisions the following year in, a, in, in sort of a far more uh, cautious and perhaps slightly negative way. So the market, so, so kind of the message here is, is, you know, I think the market should take its cue from the election, yeah. not vice versa. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. So when you take a look at Biden versus Trump matchup or even a Sanders versus Trump matchup, how do you see that unfolding? Well, I think most people would agree that it will be, you know, at least outwardly speaking, you know, probably the most contentious, hostile, and ungentlemanly uh, election of our lifetimes. You know, that kind of goes without saying. What's interesting about a Biden-Trump matchup is that, you know, Biden will have to placate the Sanders wing of the party so they actually show up at the polls in November. Uh, And Biden will have to walk that tightrope because Trump will will probably try and take advantage of that and probably paint him, you know, as being further to the left than Biden has been historically. Sure. If it's Sanders versus Trump— it will kind of be a you know a no holds barred attack on each other's core ideologies, and, and right now I would say that probably favors Trump, but a lot you know could change given the environment we're in right now. So how would you see either of those scenarios playing out? Uh, yeah, another great question. Uh, well, you know we're all familiar with the saying, history may not repeat itself, but it often does rhyme. Uh, so when I think about it, kind of in my mind, I, I, I tend to sort of 
think, you know, what elections historically might this year rhyme with? And, and a few come to mind. First is 1972. Richard Nixon was running for re-election. He was really not that popular president. Trust me, I was uh, 11 years old at the time, and I can okay. remember quite well. He was not going into that election a highly uh, popular president, you know, given the situation in Vietnam and the uh, the economic backdrop at the time. So he probably should have had a pretty tough re-election. Mm-hmm. But the Democrats nominated George McGovern, a senator from South Carolina who was extremely far to the left, you know, way too far to the left for the country at that point in time, and Nixon won easily. Okay. So this might rhyme a bit if Sanders winds up going against Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, second would be 1984, uh, the year, not the book. Uh, <laughs> Reagan was running for re-election, strong economy. Uh, Democrats had a choice between the ultimate established candidate – Former vice president, sound familiar? Yes. Walter Mondale, and a more dynamic uh, type of candidate, but less established, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gary Hart, senator from Colorado. Mm -hmm. And Hart had momentum out of the gates. He was winning the early primaries, uh, but the establishment rallied around Mondale, Mm -hmm. sound familiar, Mm -hmm. uh, to pull him across the finish line, so to speak, and, you know, Reagan wound up beating him handily. So, you know, this could rhyme a bit also. You know, then on the flip side, there's 1980. We talked about that just a couple minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, incumbent President Jimmy Carter gets hit with an unexpected crisis, the Iranian hostage crisis, mm-hmm. right at the start of the election. Looks at first like he's handling it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Then it turns on him, and with a sliding economy, you know, he loses. So could be a rhyme there. And finally, there's 1992. Mm-hmm. Incumbent George Bush sort of steadily loses his popularity throughout the year, you know, as the economy stagnates, yeah. the country simply wants to change. And Bill Clinton, you know, possible rhyme there as well. So which one do you think rhymes the most? Yeah, I would say either 1980 or 1984. Two very different outcomes, of course. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Yes, we will. That's fascinating stuff. Those are some excellent historical comparisons. We're about out of time, Tom. Let's let's push this forward. Um, what do you want to say at the end here? Yes, well, uh, we, we have a long way to go until November, uh-huh. and uh, we plan to stick around for it. So stay tuned and uh, join us for the next podcast of our series from now until November, the election in the markets, because remember, it's not only your vote, it's also your money. We hope you all plan to do just that. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Assets under management as of January 31st, 2020. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global, international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Alternative investment strategies may include long, short, and market-neutral strategies. Bear market strategies, tactical strategies such as debt and or equity, foreign currency trading strategies, global real estate securities, commodities, and other non-traditional investments. 
The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. Transamerica Asset Management, TAM, is the asset management business unit of Transamerica. TAM consists of Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. 250771.